Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am more than six feet away from Chris. I'm Jeff Stark. Well over 600 miles away from me, in fact, close to 800 to 1,000, I think. But anyway, we hope that all of our listeners are staying safe and healthy as the COVID-19 pandemic wears on. If you're enjoying the show, uh, please keep on listening because we'll be putting out episodes uh, through the rest of the crisis. But today, we were lucky enough to talk to Chris Costello, a Boston-based artist who has designed a number of commemorative and circulating U.S. coins and has an interesting connection to the typeface papyrus, which we will explore in the interview. In addition to our conversation with him, we also cover a couple of recent numismatic news stories. We go over an old issue of Coin World, and we look at This Week in History. And as always, I will do my very best to answer a trivia question. That's right. And if you find that you have extra time now to spend on your hobby, we hope that you can find time to spend more time with us. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Go back and listen to earlier episodes. We were just, this uh, last week, were rated as MS-65 by Scott Barman. (laughs) So we hope that we can deliver that high level of quality and we're going to work to improve to someday. Maybe we can get a CAC sticker. Maybe we can uh, bump that up to 68 or 69, but you go back and check us out and be sure to follow along as we go forward in this journey in collecting. Yes, indeed. So thanks so much for your support. This week, a couple of major stories came out about historic and potential future silver dollars. So we've actually discussed this issue on the Coin World podcast before, probably about eight or nine months ago is when the story was last really relevant. But a new legislation was introduced uh, to Congress that, if enacted, will create silver dollar bullion coins using the designs of the classic Morgan and Peace dollars. Now, this may sound familiar, as I mentioned, because a similar piece of legislation was introduced about nine months ago and didn't ultimately get any traction. It was seeking to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the transition from the Morgan to the Peace Dollar design, which occurred in 1921, but that measure failed to gain any legislative traction. So a couple of members of the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee, Mike Moran and Thomas J. Urim, are supporting this measure, uh, House Resolution 6192. It was introduced on March 11th. And if enacted, would create two Boolean coins. But unlike most Boolean coins, they would not be 0.999 fine silver. They would actually be 0.900 fine silver. The old uh, coin silver composition that United States coins 1964 and before, all circulating coins had that composition as opposed to the traditional Boolean composition that's used for the American Eagle series, for example. 
Well, and I would even mention that I believe that 900 fineness uh, has been used for commemorative coins in modern times, much like the Britannia silver of 958 fineness was sort of became connected with the British coin system. 900 fine has been a standard fineness for the U.S. until more recent times. Well, and so this legislation also demonstrates the desire on the part of a lot of collectors, or at least a significant segment of the collecting community, to see the 100th anniversary of the design change in 1921 uh, honored in some way. And there's talk that if enacted, dollars would be struck at the Philadelphia, Denver, and San Francisco mints, but that privy marks might be added to make reference to the fact that the uh, Morgan dollars were struck at Carson City and New Orleans as well. So that would add, you know, we've talked about privy marks in previous episodes, weighed their sort of relative merits, especially their role in terms of distinguishing certain coin issues or making reference to some kind of event or anniversary. So again, uh, the legislation was only recently introduced. No major legislative action has occurred. If anything does, we will keep all of our listeners updated on that. But for the moment, there is a new bill in Congress, so if you feel strongly that that centennial should be acknowledged in some way, contact your representatives. Tell them that you're interested in seeing it. But there's another dollar coin-related story that just going to tell us a bit about. Apparently, the dies for the sort of famed, mysterious... 1964 peace dollar have been located. That's right. Our colleague Paul Jilks has done the reporting. This is based on the efforts of a Dan Carr out in Colorado. Many collectors know Dan from his many neat issues from uh, the Moonlight Mint. Dan has designed a couple state quarters way back in the day. Uh, during that program. But Dan got information from the Mint. They disclosed an image of the 1964 D Peace Dollar Master Die. The Master Die is the item from which working dies are created, working dies being the ones as evidenced by their name that are used in striking the coin. So this is a obverse Master Die. A single example of this is being stored at the Die Vault in Philadelphia for the 1964 D Peace Dollar. That is such a mysterious and important and fascinating issue. Dan is actually, Dan Carr has made modern commemorations of the 1964 Peace Dollar, taking old examples, legitimate coins that were struck, and he's used them to overstrike the 64 design. The design's the same, everything's the same except the year. He has an old press that was at the Denver Mint in Colorado there, because he's out in Colorado as well. He has made commemorative examples of the 1964 D Peace Dollar using actual coins. So he has a very deep interest in the story of the actual coins. These were struck. The U.S. was striking the coins. There was much need for coinage in circulation. There was a lot of, as you'll recall, I think that was the time when mint marks and the sets were suspended. There was it was it was rapid upheaval as you saw the baby boom, the growing uh, American economy 
burgeoning you know demand for coins was immense the mints were bursting at the seams uh, that was right on the edge of when silver was taken out of most coins from that 900 fine 1964 dated coins were struck well into 1965 and maybe even beyond i believe and i seem to remember reading a coin world article about this shameless plug subscribe to the print i do seem to remember seeing that they were struck you're right all the way through 1965 and i believe it's 1965 yeah, but they were all, as you pointed out, Jeff. They were all dated. They were all dated 1964. This was the transition from silver to base metal, copper, nickel, clad, the sandwich alloys, as as sometimes people call them. That was uh, in the works going on. This backdrop was rather immense and, and tumultuous time that these coins sort of entered our view, except that they were never released for circulation, and they were to have been all melted. You know, they were struck, they were waiting, and they never entered circulation. They were never monetized. So far, we have no records, uh, no knowledge of any pieces that are legitimate that are in the marketplace, certainly not publicly. There's always been rumors out there that, you know, certain examples that they might be there, who knows? Nobody, you know. There were there were test strikes made or, you know, some were clandestinely made or something like that. Well, whoever is the first person to come out with one of those examples publicly and try to uh, sell it or whatever, they're, they're going to, one would expect, encounter resistance just as the case with the 1933 Double Eagles has unfolded for decades so, because of their questionable nature, shall we say, of manufacturers. So it is exciting news. It's big news. The fact that the master die does exist for the obverse, no master die or working die for the reverse, no working die for the obverse as well. It's just one single die in the die vault, but we have images of that. And the images show that all of the design details match up with the 1934-1935 examples, the last to be struck before the 64. So that's kind of fun. That's kind of big news. Who doesn't love to hear about Morgan dollars and peace dollars? Well, yeah, they're collector mainstays and the you know removal of silver from circulating coinage and the sort of legend of the 1964 peace dollar obviously looms large in the imaginations of a lot of numismatists. So anyway... We're we're delving a little bit into mint history. We're going to go a little bit even further back into mint history, Jeff, for our This Week in History segment. What was going on in numismatic history? So numismatic history, we're looking at, this is paper money related now, before we get into the This Week in Coin World history, which is more coins. April 12th, 1862. So what was happening in the 1860s at that time, the Civil War? This is a callback to a previous episode. We've mentioned this before, but it was on April 12th, 1862, that a one Samuel C. Upham began advertising his Confederate facsimile notes in Harper's Weekly. You may recall from our earlier discussions, Mr. Upham was a counterfeiter, and he decided to engage in open advertising for sales for fake Confederate notes hey, uh, flood the uh, Confederate economy with these, hurt them economically. 1862, of course, the fate of the Confederates was much better than, say, two and a half years later, 1865, early 1865, when things were really in shambles. But the idea was Mr. Upham was a printer in, I believe, Philadelphia. He was selling fake notes 
and needed people to buy them and distribute them and get them out there. And for their efforts in buying them, there was profit for them as well. So it's fun to note that that is when he first began advertising these spurious pieces, such a, uh, a fun, fascinating part of numismatic history. So that's sure. what that's what was going on this week in history. What was happening this week in coin world history? Well, we're going to talk about coins. We look to the April 7th, 1982 issue of coin world. And what was on the front page? Most of the front page was dedicated to the a proposal for commemorative coins. So this 1982, you'll remember that, that date should stick out to our listeners who are familiar with modern commemorative. Sure. 1982 was the return of the commemorative coin program. The modern commemorative program from 1982 to present day, there hadn't been commemorative coins since 1954 until 82. The George Washington coins were the first ones in 82. But what was the focus of this issue's front page was not Washington commemoratives, but the Olympic program that was being proposed. For those old enough to have been around and paying attention, I was but a wee lad, but I know enough about this. I was five when the Los Angeles Olympics was going on that summer, or almost five. I believe that was where the great uh, Mary Lou Retton made fame for her performance, uh, I think Perfect Ten. But anyway, the Los Angeles Olympic Games were on the docket in 1982, looking forward. They knew that this event was going to happen, and it unlike the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, was not delayed a year. The idea was, let's come up with a commemorative coin program. We're going to sell these coins. The U.S. had just restarted the commemorative coin program. These would be used as fundraisers. These would be commemoratives. It was still a very new thing to talk about a commemorative coin program from the U.S. And what bigger topic than the Olympics? Because that's such a global event. Well, there was a proposal out there that 25 coins would be issued for the 1984 Games, which is just an astonishing number of coins, especially when you think about today, we might have three coins for a given commemorative coin program. You'll have the copper nickel half dollar, you'll have the silver dollar, and maybe the gold $5. So maybe some cases it's a $10 but uh, for gold, but you know, 25 coins. Oh my goodness. That is not what ended up happening. Of course, we know that in hindsight, but the, the cover here, you have Olympic athletes, a story about them making their testimony and statement supporting this bill. You had Frank Anunzio, who was a powerful and famous member of Congress who was a mover and shaker in the House Financing and Banking Committees, the committee that would oversee and have oversight of coins. The Government Accountability Office was critical of the program. You know, So you have three stories here. One's the Olympic athletes supporting it. One's the the GAO critical of the proposal. And then you have a former mint director, Eva Adams, who was supporting the bill. So that was the big news for the front page of coin world, April 7th, 1982. Talk about letters, Chris. Each week we delve into these issues and then I love covering the letters page because it's always interesting to see what was on the minds of our readers. And 
a couple of classic topics come up in, in the letters page. Uh, the second letter that I cover will will probably be a familiar refrain to a lot of people. So the the letters to the editor section uh, usually has a larger title where you know there are a number of different letters listed, but all of the letters usually exist under one title that makes reference to one specific letter that highlights a given issue of generally some kind of contemporary importance. It has something to do, you know, people might complain about you know, issues relating to historical coins, but they tend, for the, the title and the, and the sort of marquee letter, they tend to be focused on sort of unfolding events or potential unfolding events in U.S. currency. So this letter is interesting. The, the title uh, is Collector Advocates Gold Legal Tender Coin. Now, this is 1982, and those listeners of ours who are interested in Boolean coins, we were just talking about a, a proposal that's in Congress right now for uh, a new type of Boolean coin. But collectors of earlier American bullion coins will know that the American Eagle, the Gold and Silver Eagle program, began in 1986, four years after this was published. So this collector's letter actually is, is somewhat prescient, though, as you'll hear in a minute, some of his proposals never ultimately came to fruition, though the overall topic of his letter would ultimately prove to be important in the years following this column being published. So the letter reads, when will Congress learn? It opens with a rhetorical question. When will Congress learn? The only American gold coin that will ever compete with the gold coins of Canada and South Africa is a coin worth dollars, which could be spent as a legal tender. The public doesn't want medals or, quote, eagles, which can't be spent. Well, boy, would, uh, would he ultimately be disappointed. The best coin for the collector would be a gold coin with a face value higher than the gold value. It's always a little bit dangerous. Because it could always be spent for its face value, and if gold prices went up, it could be sold for its Boolean value. I would like to see a U.S. coin with a one-fourth ounce of gold and a face value of $125, half ounce valued at $250, and a one-ounce coin with a value of $500. The cost of the gold in manufacturing would be less than the face value, so the government would make a profit while selling the coins at face value, plus a reasonable shipping and handling charge of $5 per coin. This is from a man named Tony Brown in Wyndham, Minnesota. So... His proposal is fairly interesting, though, like I said, very few of his prescriptions would ultimately be realized. Um, the American Eagle program, when it was eventually introduced, had $5 tenth of an ounce, $10 quarter of an ounce. These are their um, face values, just for the sake of clarity. A $25 half ounce and a $50 ounce. So his suggestion that the face value of the ounce be $500, um, which is right around where gold bullion was in 1982, or it would have been based on his proposal. So ultimately, the denominations that ultimately arrived were very different, and while bullion coins are legal tender, in the sense that you could walk into a store with a $50 gold bullion coin, you could theoretically buy $50 worth of something with it, you wouldn't probably want to do that because the bullion value far exceeds its face value. Maybe, maybe but, if you were buying toilet paper, then it would be worth it. <laughs> right, right. That's, um, I mean, in, in times like this, when there are some products that are very in demand, you know, maybe, maybe the gold, $50 worth of toilet paper exchanged for gold might actually uh, work out a little bit uh, better in the customer's favor. Yeah. So Not the proposal is interesting because he expresses reservations about the idea of eagles, which of course is ultimately what ended up being created. 
But the idea of, of sort of circulating bullion is really occupies a special place in the imaginations of a lot of coin collectors and some sound money advocates. Though Mr. Brown's suggestion for a circulating, or at least a legal tender gold coin, it did kind of come to fruition. He ended up missing the mark in terms of what actually would be created in a number of ways. The second letter that I'm going to talk about echoes a concern that people have brought up for a very long time concerning the designs of our coinage. Under the title, Coins Need a Change, the letter reads, In comparison to other nations of the world, it is worthy to note and to say that we have the ugliest and most boring coinage ever to spill and scratch their way out of mints. No, I'm not knocking our great country. But shouldn't a great nation like ours take a lot more pride in the appearance of our coinage? Look at them. The, quote, penny, <laughs> in quotation marks, person could have just said cent, nickel, dime, and quarter are all over their limit of living, way over. It's time to put every single design to rest and for the, cre- quote, again in quotes, creative minds in D.C. to think of new ones. You would think America only had four or five presidents. What happened to the style and class of the coinage of years gone by? The graceful head of liberty, St. Gaudens' Indian princess. These truly were works of art, not what we have thrown at us now. It's time for a complete change. This is from uh, Richard J. Bruno, Islip Terrace, Long Island, New York. That's something that I think people have said since time immemorial. Someone is someone is always unhappy with the designs of coins for whatever reason, and everyone has their own aesthetic sensibility, certainly. People I, have been expressing their angst about different designs and sort of a lack of creativity in designs for quite a while. Although in the 1980s, I can kind of understand where they're coming from because America's coinage had been static in terms of um, aesthetic presentation for quite some time. So I suppose I can understand where that reader was coming from. And uh, I believe Mr. Bruno was the name. I would say, be careful what you wish for, right? Because <laughs> some, some folks look at some of the designs that we've had in the last 20 years and and shriek in horror, hey, you wanted change. <laughs> it, uh, you know, Change is not always good. Unless you're at a vending machine. so um, <laughs> Exactly. So now you've uh, had the chance to share reader letters, I want you to have a chance to weigh in and give the answer to the question. Last week, the question was, why was the first U.S. Mint located in Philadelphia? We were looking for something U.S. Mint related because we spoke with Emily Damstra, who had designed U.S. coins. So do you know why the U.S. Mint was located in Philadelphia? Uh, and that was you know, the, the first mint? At the time that the mint was established, that was the seat of the Congress, correct? As required by law, since Philadelphia was the nation's capital in 1792. So that is where all government business was being conducted. And so, yes, I mean, that you didn't say it in that way, but I, I know you meant it that way. <laughs> I appreciate the curve and uh, and the nice interpretation you just gave so, me there. I appreciate so it. We're going to stay in Philadelphia. And now that was an expert level question. This is novice level question. I'm sure you know the answer because we've talked about it before. It speaks to me given the uh, current situation we're in and all the concern for health and well-being. What disease closed down the Philadelphia Mint every summer during its early years? So you think about we didn't have the sort of sanitation and the the general quality of life that we have now back 
200 and almost 30 years ago, 220 years ago, there was a plague. It happened several years and it forced the mint to shut down periodically, temporarily, not uh, not for good, obviously. I have a uh, theory on this one. But uh, you're going to have to hold that till oh, next oh, week. I, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to hold in my excitement. But yes, I do think I have a sense as to what this illness is. But while you're waiting with bated breath to find out what illness was plaguing the Philadelphia Mint in the 1790s, please enjoy our interview with Chris Costello. It was a lot of fun talking to him about his work and career and his work on a couple of different typeface families. So please enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. This is our interview with Chris Costello, an award-winning graphic designer, coin designer, illustrator, and type designer based in Boston, Massachusetts. You might think the name is familiar if you know anything about the coins that are circulating in your pocket. Chris actually designed most recently the 2019 America the Beautiful San Antonio Missions Quarter. We are so thrilled to have you on the program today. Uh, It's great to be with you guys. So we want to explore your artistic career, how you got started, how that informs your coin and metal design, talk about where you've been, and and maybe even look forward uh, from that. I found this interesting in in reviewing sort of your uh, CV, your your history of work, that you started when you were 11 in hand-painting commercial signs. Talk about that for a little bit. How did you fall into this as as a, a wee lad? Yeah, well, um, I really owe a lot of uh, of this uh, to my father, who was a commercial artist. He used to work with uh, with IBM uh, as a graphic designer, and he was also a a sign painter. uh, Did a number of freelance projects, and at any chance he was able to allow me to uh, join him in his work, he gave me opportunities to uh, design brochures and do illustrations. And one of the projects I remember doing vividly was doing the backdrop signs for our little league field. Uh, when I was, I think I was in sixth grade. Uh, so I made like uh, $7 per sign. And what I think I maybe, gee, maybe about uh, maybe $70 total and use that money to expand my Indian head collection, which I thought was kind of exciting. But um, yeah, he gave me um, a, a lot of opportunities to actually learn lettering, which was he, he was quite versed at. So he he actually uh, was responsible for uh, setting me on the, the right path, going down, doing commercial art and, and graphic design. I've always been just interested in drawing and painting uh, in in uh, grade school. But then when I uh, realized that my father was actually making a living as a graphic designer, I decided to go to school for uh, design and illustration. I had a, a, a talent for it, and uh, it looked like something I would be excited uh, to do uh, for for a living, so uh, yeah, I went ahead to uh, to college, got my degree. It has been a dream of mine to design a coin, believe it or not, because I was a coin collector since uh, since I was a kid. And I guess what informs my coin designs is that I have an interest in history and culture, geography. A lot of the things that are represented on coins are uh, things that subject matter that I'm actually interested in. Uh, I think I've just got a, a, a background in a lot of the history and anything that that deals with, uh, especially American history. It really inspires me to create just diverse designs uh, for coins. I, I think it's a really, a really great opportunity uh, the U.S. Mint provides to uh, illustrate narratives and stories that are going to be, you know, preserved for history for well into the future. 
To follow up on that theme of sort of early childhood historical and numismatic interest, you're quoted in an interview with American Legion magazine talking about an interest in, in coin collecting and in coin design. You mentioned that you collected Indian heads since. Mm -hmm. um, what were some, did you collect any other early series? And were there any designs of the coins that you collected that really caught your attention and influenced your early creative work and have sort of influenced your work throughout your career? I had a fascination with everything that was uh, created by uh, Charles Barber. Anything around the turn of the century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, just something about that artistic style that I really enjoyed. I would say my favorite designs were those done by uh, Weinman and, uh, for the half dollar and McNeil for the, uh, uh, the quarter dollar, the walking liberties and the standing liberties. It kind of moved on from the uh, tra traditional design into something that was a little bit more progressive uh, for that period. And, uh, and they were just so beautiful and organic looking that uh, that kind of inspired kind of the way I, I approached my current design. I would say they, there was a fluidity and motion visible in them that didn't exist pre-1916 in U.S. coins. Is that a mischaracterization or is that, does that make no, sense? No, that... that's exactly right. I think uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, kind of static design uh, that I noticed prior to, to 1916. And then with uh, inspiration from some of the French artists, uh, you began to see that coming in uh, – the uh, uh, early 20th century design that I think was gave um, just the American style a, a, a fresh, new, and and yeah, very fluid and almost lifelike appeal to the coins. So you were a coin collector from what age? Uh, gee, I think I was probably eight or nine years old. About how long yeah. ago was that? You can just give a ballpark. You don't have to, to no, be totally was, honest. Uh, Nineteen in the 1960s, <laughs> my mother was a a den mother for the brownies and uh i was uh with her i was i was i guess too young to stay at home so i used to go to the meetings and for her to keep me busy she would she gave me a big jar full of pennies and a and a whitman coin album and had me sort through the pennies and find the dates that would fit into the the weeder albums and that's when i uh i really kind of began my interest in coin collecting was I thought it was very cool to, to search for these dates. It was like solving a puzzle. I think I might co-opt that technique in the event <laughs> that, I ever, that, I, that I ever have a family. I think yeah, it, I it kept me busy during those uh, long uh, brownie meetings. So, uh, but that, that, I think that's, that was the spark that kind of is what got me going. So can you talk a little bit about how you mentioned the college, you went to Northeastern and you graduated there, would have been in the late 70s, mid 70s, somewhere in there? Uh, actually, no, it was, it was more recent. Uh, oh, I, okay. I went back to continuing education. I finished up my degree around 2004. For the period during the 80s and 90s, um, I had a, an associate's degree in commercial art, which was enough to you know get you established in, in the business. It was very much of a trade. I learned a lot of the, the trade of graphic design, but as uh, the industry started changing and evolving more into, uh, you know, digital, you know, computer-aided, there was a lot more specific skills that were required and needed outside of just, a, you know, simple hands-on trade. I saw the need to actually go back and uh, really finish out my degree to be more competitive in the, the workplace. And again, over the course of a couple of decades, the, the responsibilities for a graphic designer had increased. The skills required had also increased. So I just wanted to keep up with the evolution of the industry itself. So that, okay. that's what prompted me to go continue uh, well, and finish up sense. school. That makes mm -hmm. sense. You you mentioned uh, <clears throat> the importance of uh, 
computer technology to design, that really is a great starting point for the discussion, a brief discussion, but you're probably one of the only coin designers in the US or the world to have created font families. How, how did this come to be that I go to my computer and the papyrus and Blackstone fonts, I can choose in my page layout program or even just word processing program. That was something you created. How did that happen? It was from my interest in lettering, uh, which was was kind of uh, started with the sign painting thing. I I had a fascination with letters and uh, I found myself in you know whatever free time I might have, even during work, uh, you know, sometimes we're slow. I spent uh, just some time doodling and, and, and developed a lot of favorite typography uh, through my doodling with calligraphy pens, with brushes, and I actually came up with papyrus as a result of a, uh, again, they were just simply doodles. I started drawing an alphabet that looked kind of cool. It was very original and organic, and it just kind of happened that it looked like something that was akin to uh, like hieroglyphics. So I just developed that particular font and uh, it just kind of evolved into a family. And I ended up doing a number of different, just kind of fake mock-up headlines just to see how it work in context. But it ultimately just ended up looking like something that might have commercial value. <laughs> As I developed it further beyond the doodle and really got serious about making it a full family of uh, font characters, I came up with the finished set that uh, I ended up submitting to uh, a number of different type distributors. And believe it or not, pretty much all of the people that I submitted Papyrus to rejected it because they didn't think that the feathery, uh, light, kind of notched look to it, the the kind of broken look to it, would not hold up well in computer-generated fonts, uh, just for computer and digital output. But one company uh, did actually see the potential, and they had me retool some of the characters to make them thicker and, and make sure that they would translate well and very at very small sizes. And this company was called uh, Letraset Limited. They were, they were a British company. Initially, they had created the alphabet to be available on uh, what was used, used to be called press type. It was a, called transfer lettering. Ultimately, the font was converted to a digital format and it was made available as uh, a postscript fonts, which are now through a series of acquisitions and company acquisitions, the ownership of the font after I, I sold the rights to it went through a number of iterations with International Typeface Corporation and Monotype. Down the line, a number of different font distributors had received ownership of, of the font. And it ended up through various licensing deals being on every Macintosh and, and PC computer uh, in the world. It just uh, ended up being as a, a default font included with it with every set. So that's where it, how it ended up on every computer. Too bad you don't so. get residuals like a, like an actor or an actress in a, <laughs> in a TV show getting uh, played over well, and over again. I do get royalties. The agreement royalties was a, a royalty situation that I've been, uh, been working with since I, I sold the rights to the font. So speaking uh, of, of actors and I, I almost, I almost hate to ask, but there was a, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, there was an SNL skit called papyrus mm -hmm. where they talked about the papyrus font. Did yep. you happen to catch that? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was so hilarious that, uh, I was actually on the news, uh, uh like the day oh, after really? I think, uh, was a CBS news did a, a little thing on me and, uh, 
Yeah, and just they wanted to know my comments on it. But yeah, I, I definitely I, I saw it and I commented on it, and it just kind of <laughs> went viral. And there's a if you check out my website, I've got uh, some news interviews uh, that related were reactions to that skit. So it was a lot of fun, I gotta say. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's that must be interesting. I can't imagine there are a lot of people who work in typography who <laughs> who end who up on viral. Saturday Night Live. <laughs> well, the, the font is so loved and reviled at the same time. It's really funny just to, to see people's reactions to it, you know? So, and yeah, I'm, I'm at the center of it all. It's kind of funny. <laughs> but it's interesting, your involvement in this typography and the lettering and the sign, that's been an important or uh, sort of uh, helped guide when you're talking about making a coin design. Lettering is is a key component, even though it's often probably one of the ones most overlooked. How have you noticed that reflected? And you've been uh, an artist, artistic infusion program designer since 2010, mm-hmm. so and and you know more than a dozen coins and medals to your credit. How did that help influence and and inspire that? When I joined the uh, Artistic Infusion program, I also joined the uh, the ANA, and we went to a uh, seminar up in uh, New Hampshire, and it was the uh, Augustus St. Gaudens site, uh, his studio and uh, National Historic site up there. And uh, so I was able to kind of, uh, I mean, I knew of his work prior to me being on the uh, program, but uh, I was able to really see his his coin design development and his his treatment of, of typography was magnificent. I mean, I looking at some of the sculptures uh, up there and the way uh, he basically, and his uh, students as well, um, they all incorporated typography as a part of their uh, coin composition. And the lettering is just phenomenal because it's it's all custom-made lettering. And that inspired me too, to help me to, to see that what's really important in coin design is not to relegate the typography uh, of a coin as uh, an afterthought, you know, uh, and because it's so easily uh, available through computer software that you can just throw out any any font on a design and, and call it a, a day. But uh, any chance I get, uh, I, I really try to uh, in- integrate topography as part of the uh, composition. Actually, I had an opportunity to do a, a design for the Royal Mint. I had the opportunity to actually hand letter some lettering that's going to appear on a, a two pound coin. And that was, uh, I think there's just a thrill that I was able to do real hand lettering that was unique and uh, appropriate for that particular coin design. In some cases, I don't get the opportunity to do hand lettering just because there's, there's not enough time in the project schedule. But any opportunity I do get, I look forward to, if I can hand letter the typography, I'll do that. If I don't have time to hand letter uh, the, the typography or the, the font choice, there's a lot of effort that goes into making the font work with a coin design. You mentioned the 2020 Pilgrim anniversary, basically the two pound coin for the Mayflower setting sail mm-hmm. uh, from from the Royal Mint. That is your first international coin design, correct? Uh, yes, the first one that's that's been selected. And I'm uh, definitely uh, consider that an, an amazing honor being able to do a uh, an international coin. You've had some others uh, submitted but not accepted. Was that uh, with the Royal Mint, with Canadian Mint? Where was where were uh, these? It's with the with the Royal Mint. I was uh, I actually had worked on a couple other projects. I was invited to to compete for uh, for some some designs, but was not accepted. But I'm glad that I was able to do an, a, a number of projects where ultimately I, I did get to a point where. I had this design selected, and I'm uh, very excited about that one. It seems to be uh, being received uh, very well. 
how was working with the Royal Mint different than the United States Mint? Obviously, in the U.S., the programs are congressionally mandated. There's a Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. There's there's certain stricture and structure to the way designs are processed and, and selected. There's some of that in the U.K. with the Royal Mint Advisory Committee. What mm-hmm. were some similarities? What were some differences yeah, uh, the similarities are are such that uh, in both cases, I'm invited to submit designs, and they do go through a, a kind of a rigorous uh, vetting process and, and a judging process, uh, very similar to uh, the, the the Royal Mint has an advisory committee that's very similar to the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. So in that respect, uh, it's kind of the the same type of thing where it gets started very early in the in the game, maybe a, a year or so ahead of the actual um, final review. But I think maybe one of the differences are, are there's a because it's the British coins are not mandated by law. There's a little bit more freedom and even a little bit more whimsy that's able to be applied to some designs. I mean, I say that in that it, because it's there. It's not, I guess, not as conservative, so to speak. There's more leeway to uh, uh, maybe do a, a little bit more, I guess, maybe fun or designs. Because not, not that the, the U.S. coins are not fun, but they're, it's just a different type of artistic style and a different uh, type of uh, story you're telling. The process is similar. They're just different. And I think they're, they're both the U.S. and the U.K. are just amazing opportunities for an artist to be able to submit work and have it immortalized in these uh, meta- medallions or coins. So to expound on the Mayflower and the Pilgrim designs, you are a member of the board of trustees at the uh, the Cyrus Dallin Art Museum, yes. which is going to be the moment this quarantine is over is going to be one of the first places I go. Yeah. Um, because digging into it um, has been really interesting as someone from the, the greater Boston area, you know, learning and researching for this interview, I, I looked a little bit into Cyrus Dallin and, you know, his, his history in, in Massachusetts and his sort of impact on American design is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Cyrus Dallin, so you sit on the member of the board of trustees and, you know, Cyrus Dallin actually designed the 1920, and it was issued in 1921 as well, Pilgrim Commemorative Half Dollar. Did that, I mean, first of all, that must've just been a really interesting sort of rhyming of history. And also, you know, did you find that that design impacted your thinking about your designs for the Royal Mint at all? Um, a little bit, but but not really. Uh, I the thing about what I appreciated about the the Cyrus Dallin Museum and the the artwork that Cyrus Dallin did for coinage was that uh, wow, here's this this uh, world renowned artist that's uh, I'm living in the same town where he grew up. To actually have the museum in my my town, I thought was awesome, and I w- wanted to be a part of it. I know he was a contemporary of many of the sculptors of the day, those in the, the early 20th century. And the fact that Cyrus Dallin was a sculptor and a coin designer, I thought, was just fascinating. Uh, I've had a number of his copies of his uh, 1920 Pilgrim coin. It's a very popular design, I know that. And I do really uh, like his interpretation of the Mayflower. I think the thing that inspired me about that design was that, well, first of all, nobody really knows what the Mayflower looked like. And I guess the closest thing we have to look at as, as a reference would be the Mayflower too which was generally, uh, it was considered just a typical merchant ship at the time. So Cyrus Dallin also, not knowing what the ship actually looked like, it kind of came from his imagination and just probably the, you know, the few references that he had to work with. He came up with something that was totally original. 
It may not have been completely historically accurate, but to tell the story of the Pilgrim's Voyage, I think it ended up being very successful. And there's also very, I was inspired by um, the movement. Um, it just seemed like, a, it was more of a springboard. I looked at that drawing and I thought, I want to take his image of, uh, of the Mayflower and even make it more alive, maybe make it come out of the frame. And the, the Royal Mint coins, the, the two-point coin, had that opportunity with the bimetallic composition of the, of the coin and the fact that it's, it's actually like a ring inside of a ring. I thought that was a great opportunity to take the Mayflower idea and give it a little bit more dimension and kind of showing it coming out of the coin. So that was the inspiration that led me to deliver the final design, which I think did a, a good job at, at showing motion, showing the, the ship coming out of the, the coin field, but also just showing the water movement and showing a lot of curves. And I wanted to try to bring as much energy to, to that piece as possible. So speaking of energy, your designs cover a number of different subjects and, and themes over the course of all of the different designs that you had accepted by the Mint and now the, the Royal Mint in England. From a thematic standpoint, did you find any of the, the subjects that you tackled particularly challenging? Were there any where when you started out, you weren't necessarily totally sure how you wanted to do it and you sort of found you know, that the, the design sort of evolved over time. Can, can you explain that process a little bit? And are, are there any links that you would draw between um, some of your different designs? Yeah, the thing that's great about the U.S. Mint's programs is that each coin is its, it's, its own individual personality. Some projects are, I guess for me, are probably easier, I would say, or, or, than others. Some are, are kind of difficult when we have to, I'd say probably the most difficult ones are the ones where you have to capture the um, personality of a particular individual, uh, which means that the portrait must really come alive somehow. And that can be a challenge to, uh, you know, even kind of representing a living persons, say, for a, a congressional medal or something. So they can be a bit challenging, but not impossible. And I think I'd, I'd like to take on the challenge of, for each portrait that I find a little bit difficult. I, tr I try to really put my all into it to, to really make it come alive. But the subject matter, it varies so much. It's like each project I'm invited to participate in, I may know the, the subject matter somewhat, but if I don't, then it calls for a lot more research and a lot of uh, the projects inspire me to learn and to really engage with the history or the culture or the, the personality that I'm researching. I guess I have some particular interests, you know, for, for example, uh, maybe the landscapes for the national parks, uh, the animals, uh, historic figures, Native American uh, themes have been a favorite of mine. But the ones that I'm not familiar with, say, like, I remember the March of Dimes was uh, one. Um, a couple others that were kind of difficult. Some of the civil rights themed ones uh, just require me to do a lot more research to really get in touch with just the whole feeling behind <clears throat> the message. You mentioned Native American themes and, and depictions of Native Americans, you know, on the, the Native American dollars and um, 20s in 2017. It's interesting to say, you know, not, not to bring it back too much to Cyrus Dallin, but Cyrus Dallin also did design a number of statues and other sort of visual depictions of Native Americans over the course of his career. So mm -hmm. it's again, it's interesting just the parallels that sort of that emerge from that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know uh, he was very much into the cause of uh, the Native American uh, struggle uh, during the summer. He spent uh, a lot of his life out in Utah as well, and even he uh, he did several paintings in the area, but. Um, yeah, he definitely made a connection with the, the Native American population, and uh, it's definitely can be seen in his work.
One of the things I want to uh, touch upon, uh, you mentioned the challenge of depicting a real person. Uh, as somebody from Missouri, and I own this coin, the 2016 Mark Twain commemorative silver dollar really mm-hmm. s- it speaks to me. And I thought that you captured Twain's mischievous nature, the, the twinkle in his eye, as it were, the thought process, the creative process uh, that he engaged. I thought that was really captured well. And of course, I couldn't help but notice a parallel thinking, as you talked about painting signs, <laughs> I'm immediately drawn to this image of Tom Sawyer overseeing the whitewashing <laughs> of the fence. So right. it, 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 was, it just gave me a, a chuckle as well. But one of the things that I think is a distinction is you've created an enormous body of designs. Uh, you don't get into the sculpting side of it. What's it like to, you come up with this thing and then you have to hand it off to another artist, some cases uh, multiple artists, and have them bring forth your vision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's an interesting point because uh, I, I didn't have any real sculpture experience and I, I saw what needed to be done. From a two-dimensional perspective, the artist drawing two-dimensional designs and then passing them off to sculptors who will in turn create bas-reliefs. Because I had no experience in that for several years, I developed an interest in sculpture because I wanted to see the the, the process of going from two-dimensional drawings to three-dimensional sculpture. I wanted to actually feel that. I wanted to feel what the uh, the U.S. Mint sculptors were doing and experiencing as they looked at our uh, two-dimensional designs. So I actually went to a number of different workshops to do a bas-relief. I won a scholarship to the one of the ANA summer seminar classes on uh, the art of engraving, which was um, my kind of intro uh, to it. And we actually had some opportunities to work with clay and, and plaster, which is the traditional mode of uh, sculpting that the Mint uh, was using. And so I got familiar with working in bas-relief, actually working with clay, working with plaster. And um, that was just one experience. And it was a two-year course that we took. And that that gave me a a nice idea of what the sculpting was all about. And then um, I actually went to one of Heidi Waswiet's sculpture workshops at Brook Green Gardens. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was on the uh, the CCIC for a while. And uh, I had kind of developed a relationship with her just out of curiosity in her of her artistic experiences. And and finally... uh, being able to work under her for the week-long program really, again, just kind of helped me uh, get get a better sense of you know what it means, what, what's involved in, in sculpting a metal. So we actually did the whole uh, the clay and the plaster uh, transfers and and ultimately uh, made a, a metal cast metal. So I was just able to get a feel for you know working with clay, working with plaster. And I got a better sense of what the sculptors do at the Mint. And it, it actually helped me to understand how to best uh, create a two-dimensional design, knowing that a sculptor is going to have to sculpt this. So so my familiarity with the facial structure, with even with the bones and, and, and uh, work, just having a, a model of a human skull in my hand and be able to to feel the dimension of the forms of face. It was just a great experience. And it just really helped me along uh, the road of of being a better coin designer by understanding the full process. It's interesting. You mentioned Heidi. We interviewed her a while back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great artist. When, when was that uh, class that you, you took? It was, uh, let's see, I think it was about a year and a half ago. It was at the Brook Green Gardens in, in South Carolina. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah it was, and that was a great experience. We, I met with some other uh, amazing sculptors, 
uh, in our class. And uh, that was just a great experience to, to be in a studio environment, to have somebody of Heidi's caliber uh, just actually working, even working the clay with me to, uh, to get me to experience what it means to, to sculpt. It was, it was very helpful in my coin design because all, all along I was thinking, you know, this is what I need to know when I am creating a profile or a, a portrait in some case. I have to understand the, the highs and the lows of um, the structure of the, the element that I'm working on. Uh, the subject that I'm working on. So it uh, it really just expanded my understanding of 3D. One of your coin designs, which is forthcoming, is the reverse of the Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site for the Alabama America the Beautiful uh, quarter dollar. Aside from that, uh, are there any other projects that you're working on at the moment, coin or metal related or otherwise, that you could tell us about? I actually can't. A lot of that is confidential until it's made public, but um, I'm obligated uh, not to uh, uh, disclose that information until the U.S. Mint makes things public. That makes sense. So your 2017 American Liberty Design won the 2019 um, Coin of the Year Award. Could you talk a little bit about not only your design process for that particular coin, and why you think it might have merited that award. Obviously, you can't put yourself in the headspace of the people assess all of the different designs. But what about that do you think really caught the attention of the Mint and other people assessing designs? Well, I would, I would start off, I guess, with my interpretation of the, uh, the bald eagle. I was, first of all, very excited to be able to do and to work on this piece because I, I had always wanted to do a classic American bald eagle. And one of the things, and in my again, my study of, of past uh, eagle designs throughout American history, I noticed the classical designs throughout the 1800s. The, the, there's a very static and stoic depiction of the eagle. In the early 20s, we started to get a little bit more motion with the flying eagles on the quarter, and the, even the kind of perched eagle on the on the uh, half dollar, and, and of course the peace dollar in motion. I wanted to, I'm sorry, not the peace dollar, the um, $20 gold piece. I wanted to do a design of the eagle that hasn't really been done before. And that was with the eagle's wings uh, in the downward position. Uh, I hadn't seen that done anywhere. And I thought there was potential to do something with that kind of position of the, of the bird. And when you study eagles in flight, there's something very dramatic about the, the wings being down. I mean, we see a lot of, a lot of depictions of the eagle's wings up and kind of or, or in gliding position. But when they're down, there's something that's a little bit more, it captures a little bit more aggression or a little bit more initiative or, or something in, in the bird of prey that I thought was, was exciting. And it, there's, there's a big, because the, the downward facing wings kind of cover most of the, uh, the eagle, there's a, definitely an opportunity to show more of the feathers, more of the detail, thinking in terms of how this would be sculpted. I thought it would be uh, magnificent if um, if it got selected and we had all these feathers kind of coming out, almost like a radiating from the central figure of the eagle's face and eagle's head. So a lot of thought was given into that particular position. I can't remember what came first, but I also designed the Rhode Island, uh, Block Island National Wildlife Refuge Quarter, which also had the bird having its wings in the downward position. It allowed for a different arrangement of the composition, I think. And in the same way with the eagle design of the, uh, the American Liberty, the wings kind of occupy the, the most of the composition. But just the way that they frayed out and the tips of the feathers pointed, uh, I just felt that that was a new and a fresh uh, way to depict the eagle. I was definitely excited that it was, it was part of um, a design, a, a paired design with American Liberty on the obverse that it actually won the coin of the year 
Award. I think very honored to be uh, to have received that award along with Justin Kunz. I think the combination, the pairing of, of my eagle with Justin's um, Liberty design was very successful. It's modern, but also traditional at the same time. I think this this particular coin does a little bit of both. There's some traditional design aesthetic married with some a little bit more progressive and modern approaches. That's a perfect way to cap off our discussion today. We cannot wait to see what modern and traditional blends you will come up with for future coins and medals. I think my favorites are probably the uh, the Twain, and you did a World War uh, one over there, as well as a, a great little um, private coin design for um, Sergeant Henry Johnson. Oh, yeah. It looks parallel to the uh, Marine Corps silver medal that you did for World War One Centennial as well. Lots of great stuff. We're going to have links to uh, information about you and some of the designs. And we just can't thank you enough for sharing a little bit of the process behind bringing this to life. Well, thank you, guys. It was a, a great pleasure to be uh, speaking with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. That was Chris and I's interview with Chris Costello, a U.S. coin designer who's also recently designed a coin for the Royal Mint. Uh, he has a fascinating career. We hope that you found it of interest as we did. And if you enjoyed the interview, if you enjoyed the entire episode, if you've enjoyed any of the previous work that we've done, we would really appreciate it if you kept on listening every week and subscribed on whatever platform you get your podcasts. You know, we... Hope that everyone is weathering uh, this pandemic and the sort of um, social distancing procedures that uh, so many of us are practicing. Uh, we hope everyone is weathering it well and uh, and that you found this podcast to be an enjoyable way to take your mind off of the admittedly grim state of affairs for an hour or so. And if you have, um, please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns, or really if you just feel like reaching out to us for whatever reason. Again, uh, please keep on listening uh, and subscribe. You know, your support means a great deal to us. And if you could keep coming, we would certainly appreciate it. So on that note, until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the Coinworld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes. Choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.